Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, I've got Mike Kottmeyer back. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your morning. Yeah, happy to do it. Glad to talk to you. So we only get to talk like twice a year now, it seems like, at the Agile Conference and maybe like one other one. So I'm psyched to check in and see what's going on. Yeah, we got to figure out how to do this more often, I think. Maybe put something on the calendar or something. Or on the board. <laughs> In the ready go. column. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, for those of you who are listening, uh, is sort of how Mike's look at transformation has evolved or is evolving and kind of where Leading Agile is kind of focusing its efforts in terms of helping these organizations move towards a more agile state. So Mike, do you want to, can you share the question that you, you brought up before we started the call? That might be a great way to get into it. Yeah, well, one of the things that, that I ask people a lot when, when I'm doing more of a freeform talk is I said, look, right, so if if you could if you were king for a day if you could if you could affect any kind of change in the organization you wanted and you could get everybody's mindset shifted and you could get everybody to want to do agile and um you know you had all the funding and all the ability to hire whatever it is you wanted you had like what would you go do the next day with the caveat that you have to show like legit um business improvement within 3 to 6 months I think one of the things that we get kind of trapped in in the Agile community a lot is we deal with so much resistance to these ideas, right? At least the ideas in practice that we get kind of hung up on, man, we just got to get through the middle managers. Man, we just got to get our executives to buy in. Man, we just got to get the PMO to, to kind of like change how they're thinking about things. And so the fascinating thing to me, Dave, is that when I ask that question and I take away that part of the argument, almost nobody knows what to do next. And kind of the answer is, the answer is, well, the teams will figure it out. Yeah. Are you sure? Right. I don't know that the teams will figure it out. Maybe, maybe in some contexts they will, but I, I don't know that you could say in every context that they would. Do does they even sense? know how to, yeah, it does. But do, do they even know how to quantify what, you know, you said show legitimate business improvement. Are they able to articulate that? Or is that something that they also often need help with? Well, so I think a lot of times we deal with it in terms of kind of like platitudes or, you know, just like, you know, it's business value and market or it's customer value or, you know. But those are you know, fairly vague terms. They're not very concrete. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty vague, right? So so the way that I've been talking about this, and if you think about, you know, we talked about the evolution of, of my thinking, it's like one of the things that we've been really clear on for a long time is that it's not just the mindset of the organization that has to improve. Um, we believe that like the actual systems, the the operational model of the organization has to improve. And so, you know, I talk about teams and backlogs and working tests and software and structure and governance and metrics. What we're really saying is that an organization has to operate um, around kind of like discrete independent delivery units. And I don't know if that's like too esoteric or too vague, but it's like, you know, a team is this group of people that has um, – that has dedicated people and it has autonomy over its technology stack. And in order to get Scrum and the practices of Scrum to really work, you really need to have the underlying environmental ecosystem in place for Scrum to actually be effective, right? Because we talk yeah. about cult Scrum and all those different things. It's like, if I go through the motions of Scrum, right? I'm doing the Scrum things and I have the Scrum roles and I'm going through the Scrum ceremonies, but I've got a team that is encumbered by dependencies across the enterprise. That team's never going to be able to get to a definition of done at the end of the sprint. 
This goes back to that fitness thing about the, you know, they're not even ready to, to train to run a marathon yet. Yeah. So, so the, when we approach transformation, so kind of like the first understanding was that you have to deal with the underlying systems. You have to enable the systems with practices, and then you have to address kind of the mindset and the attitudes. And so you can debate as to like, whether you start with mindset and go to systems and go to practices, or maybe it's, you know, mindset and practices and systems. What we've generally centered on is, is getting the, the environmental ecosystem in the organization right um, is the first thing. Because those, to me, those dependencies that tangled debt, right, all those different things, um, that's what's really getting in the way of agility. And, you know, then practices overlay that healthy ecosystem. And then mindset is really kind of the fuel, right? It's the enabler that, that enables us to, to really operate within this new operating model. So the first understanding was we have to address all three of those things in a transformation. So teaching somebody skills is insufficient. Teaching somebody values and principles is insufficient unless I do that in conjunction with changing their, their, their model. Okay, right. that they're operating in. So that was kind of like the first level of understanding. And then we kind of talked about, we've been talking about for a few years, the thing that you see on our website around the compass, or you'll hear us call it four quadrants, things like that. But basically the, you know, the process of doing this is a journey because when there's real legit organizational impediments, we can't just say to these teams, we'll just do a retrospective and surface the impediments and the scrum master will help you remove impediments. If the impediments is a crushing level of dependence upon eight other organizations and a super heavy release management and very heavy program and portfolio governance and you know, just all these things that are beyond the purview of the team, then there has to be, um, I think, a greater deal of organizational intentionality around removing those things. And so kind of like the second major insight was – is that this this process, this notion of transformation is a process. And all of the impediments that we're going to encounter are not going to be able to be removed overnight. So that doesn't mean that we just, you know, um, kind of train and pray and, and hope that everything's going to be okay, right? We have to like go, okay, how do I get the system working now? And then how does the system evolve over the next three, six, nine, 12 months as I'm able to actually improve the system? And so we kind of introduced this idea of expeditions and base camps. And so an expedition, if you're kind of in safe world, you might think of as a value stream. Um, we don't tend to use that word. It's like your team level execution, program, portfolio, a vertical slice of the enterprise. Once we have that vertical slice identified, then we'll say, okay, first goal is let's stabilize the system. That almost never really looks as agile as we would like it to be. But what we're doing is we're doing team-based, iterative and incremental. We're using Scrum. We're using Lean. We're using Kanban. We're using um, you know, different agile program and portfolio management techniques. But the idea is like stabilize the system. And then as you improve it, you can do things like reduce batch size. Then you can start to figure out how we want to break dependencies. And then we can you know, increase the local autonomy of the team. And then we can kind of get into a Lean startup innovation mindset kind of a thing. But the processes associated with with actually improving the ecosystem and then adopting or adapting the practices that we choose to employ um, as we go, 
right? That is what helps us get there, right? It builds trust with the organization early. We earn credibility to make future improvements. Where, where I think the industry is struggling is that because we have this mindset focus, it's like, well, once we get the mindset out of the way, well, then everybody will know what to do. Well, I don't think that everybody uh, – our systems doesn't thinkers, work. Right? I don't know that everybody understands service orientation. I don't know if everybody understands team formation strategies. Even if they did, I don't know if they know how to deconstruct some of the program and portfolio stuff that's getting in the way. Right? So it's like it's like – like what I think you end up with is if I, you know, left to an organization's own devices, anything at scale, you know, you get everybody on board. But I think what you'd end up with is a lot of like um, uh, local optimizations across the organization, right? I want to ask you a question about this. I've been kind of stuck on something since you, you mentioned about mindset being the fuel. Um, you're talking about this from the, the the idea that people you know you go and you, you talk about a different mindset they might get to the point where they understand this stuff is valuable this stuff will make us better but that doesn't mean they've internalized it like i can tell you i know if i eat kale i'll be healthier i hate kale i don't want to eat it no matter of no amount of information is going to make me like the taste of it so you're it sounds to me like a parallel to that would be you, you you're going to teach them how to like kale you know you and i always end up in this place where we're talking about diet and exercise <laughs> and stuff like that so but so, it's okay, a perfect so it's a perfect right? parallel to it don't you I think i can i can have a i can have a i can have a kale loving mindset right it can understand the value of kale but if i let's take this if i don't have any kale in my house and i don't know how to prepare kale chances right. are i'm not going to eat kale you know, so I can love kale all day long, but at some point, somebody's got to put kale in the house and I've got to have the ability to cook kale and I've got to have the ability to get it on my plate. And then, you know, then, you know, my, my desire to eat kale can be realized. But isn't, you know, isn't that sort of like what yeah. we're saying is we'll teach yeah. you how to go buy kale. We'll teach you how to cook it. We'll show you how to eat it. And then you'll just like it. And that's the self, the team, everyone will just figure it out once we get to that point, which is the part where it starts to slip apart. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to be able to, um, I'm not gonna be able to get the author of this book, but there's a book out there called switch where it talks about like the elephant, the path and the rider. And, um, you know, kind of the notional idea is that the, you know, the rider's kind of the intellect, the, the elephant is the, you know, kind of your default place. I want to say your will, but it's like your habits and your, you know, your tendencies and things like that. And then there's the path. And so what it's kind of saying is that, you know, we're kind of in our default place. And if we really want to get the elephant to go a certain direction, we have to carve the path. We have to intellectually be able to to, to ride the elephant, but we need to carve the path, put it in a groove. And then, right, then what you do is you align the organization's natural tendencies to that operational model. Okay. And so, and so again, I just, I think the thing that I want everybody to take away from this, not whether you eat kale or ride elephants, but the idea is, is that in order for the mindset to, to have a place to live for in order for the practices to be a, a rational expression of how we get work done, we have to we have to align the path, right? We have to make sure that we do have teams and those teams um, are operating on uh, encapsulated technology entities and that the, the dependencies between those teams and their technology are minimized, um, you know, from a human resources perspective, from a, from a business process perspective, right? All of that stuff has to get fixed. 
the the recognition right that we have to have is that all of those things have to be fixed but we don't have years and years and years to wait for them to be fixed before we have to start demonstrating improvement so you know if i'm my if i'm that king thing and i and i have everything that i need in terms of buy in money whatever <clears throat> and i've flipped the mindset right i take that argument off the table <clears throat> Then what I'm basically asking is like, okay, how is this organization going to form teams? Where are those teams going to get backlog from? How are those teams going to be able to produce a working tested increment? How are they going to structure themselves at scale? How are we going to do agile governance? What are we going to measure? What tools are we going to use? Right, Those kinds That's of right. things. Those things all matter right? To, to, for an organization to operate with agility at scale. And once we have a hypothesis for how that's going to work, there are practices that we're going to need today to deal with dependencies that hopefully in a year we won't need. So we, we build an operational model that's respectful of the dependencies that we have now. And then we put um, organizations on a, on a transition plan to basically say, it's a little bit like the couch to 5k thing we talked about about a year ago, right? It's <laughs> like, purposely not going to bring that yeah, up. Yeah. So like when you're sitting on the couch and you're overweight and all you've got are Cheetos in your refrigerator, right? It's yeah. really hard to get up and get moving, but you know, there's certain things, you know, you do today that you, you know, just aren't an issue when you're running marathons a year from now. And so and so that journey, right, it's, it's, it's you know, so again, right, we've talked about this before. It's like you can't say to somebody, look, you just need to have the, the marathon running mindset. You need to get the right shoes. You need to do the right training. You need to do the right whatever. There's things that you do when you're overweight sitting on the couch with a kitchen full of Cheetos that you, you have to systematically improve the system so you can start performing with more agility. Okay. Yeah. So to, to right now, we're kind of like, we're, we're going over stuff that, that I think it, you and I have talked about that leading agile we've talked about and it is yeah. pretty well established, right? Right. What's, what's fascinating <clears throat> is what you start to realize. And when you, when you do this, you know, we've been in business uh, almost seven years and have had, you know, over a gosh, hundred, 200 clients, some of them rather significant in size. What you start to realize <clears throat> is that there's patterns in that, most of the work of a transformation is actually relatively repeatable. Like we, we, we don't tend to think about that, right? Because we think every organization is indifferent and everything's unknown and everything is, is you have to figure it out. But when you really look at the work of a transformation, forming teams, building backlogs, producing working tests of software, structured governance metrics, and you know the the work of the transformation being systematically breaking dependencies over time while we're delivering. When you look at it that way through that lens, what you start to realize is that <clears throat> a lot of the outcomes across different transformations are common. And so one of the things that, that we've been doing over the last couple of years is trying to get really specific about when we talk about base camps, this idea of, you know, stabilize the system, reduce batch size, break dependencies, increase local autonomy, invest to learn, right? All stuff that's up on our website. Um, when you when you look at it that way, you go, well, wait a minute. To get to base camp one, there's actually about eight to ten intermediate outcomes leading indicators right. that help us understand if we're actually moving towards increase and having a stable system. So, yeah. so like if I want to be predictable, so we think, let's just take the complexity out of it and let's talk about scrum, right? So if I said, okay, scrum team, what are we going to do to become predictable? You know, the kinds of things I would consider is, do we have a dedicated team? 
right? Are they assigned to that team all the time? Does right. the team have a product owner that is capable of bringing a well-defined backlog to the team? Does the team have the technical capability to produce a working tested increment of the product that is even potentially deployable in the market at the end of the sprint? If I've got a known backlog and I've got that backlog estimated or for the no estimates crowd, I, if they're all broken up into very similarly sized increments, <laughs> everything's just, a one, right? Everything's one, yeah. right? Um, if everything's a one, right, then we can just start measuring. We can establish velocity. And so a, a stable uh, a, a team, that, an agile team that is predictable can typically, um, in the presence of a known backlog, establish a stable velocity and be able to get feedback to which they can inspect and adapt. Right. That's the base pattern of scrum. And so if if you know, when we go in and we look at a, an, an individual scrum team, the failure modes are rather consistent. Right. We can talk about, you know, we have to get the team to the point where it's whole and complete. And then they need to go through the ceremonies and they need to be able to decompose the work with the product owner and they need to be able to estimate. And they need to be able to plan. They need to be able to deliver continuously. Right. All those things. Right. There's a set of outcomes, a set of intermediate capabilities that become leading indicators of whether that team's going to be predictable. I was talking with a group last night and, you know, they're going through um, a safe implementation and they're struggling. And, you know, the question that they're asking is, well, do we need to get rid of safe or do we need to do something else? And I said, well, safe isn't fundamentally the problem, right? There's certain organizational attributes that are probably not in place that if right. you were able to get them in place, you would be able to do much better team level scrum. And then by extension, you get much better scaled agile. Okay? okay. And so it's not a matter of the practices. It's not a matter of the mindset. It's a matter of, did we achieve those organizational attributes? So, so the, the evolution of my thinking about transformation is we have to stop thinking about it. Like it's some kind of crazy black art that we just, you know, we just throw, um, you know, we throw stuff at and this magic of self-organization happens within about <laughs> within about two to three weeks of a transformation, right, of a, you know, even within a subset of the organization, we need to have teams formed. You know, they need to be operating off of a stable backlog by four or five weeks in. They need to have stabilized the velocity. The product owners need to be able to plan forward, um, you know, some they probably need to have three to four sprints of ready backlog. They need to be tracking towards getting a, a release backlog that they can talk about during release planning, right? So there's these, these outcomes that are not – they're not different every time. I want to ask you a question about this. So you can – I mean you can figure out kind of some stuff that needs to be in place and kind of you know maybe even an order in which you want to see this stuff or yeah. when these things are present, then we're ready for that. Do you think it's also possible to predict – when the backlash is going to occur, like, oh, we just got this. That means in five minutes, all the executives are going to freak out because they don't have a Gantt chart. Yeah, fascinating. So there's two aspects of that. Can you predict the kind of backlash that you're going to get and then when, right? right. Well, when is in, and this is where it gets kind of like interesting, right? Because the when and the exact um, backlash is is always going to be pretty unique. But what you but what you can start to anticipate are the kinds of problems and the kinds of resistance that you're going to get. Like one okay. fascinating pattern that we've seen a lot, it's like, cause we've, we've, as, as we get bigger and we start doing more strategic things like we've had over the last couple of years, you know, you start to deal with multi-coach engagements and like, like, let's say for example, 
coach A and coach B teach um, story decomposition different, or they teach estimating different, or they teach how to run a retrospective differently. One of the things you could almost guarantee is that somebody who is struggling with, um, with what we're doing is going to compare notes with somebody else and go, well, your coach taught me this and your coach taught me this and they weren't the same. So clearly these guys don't know what the heck they're doing. And so therefore we're going to call into question the entire validity of the transformation. Right. Right. So these are like really simple examples, but, but like there's this thing as agilists, right? We recognize that the practices don't fundamentally matter and that um, exactly how you do story composition probably doesn't matter. But that said, to a client that's new, right, it probably does matter. And so, you know, we'll create like a job aid that says, you know what, if you need one way to do this, this is how you decompose stories. This is how you do estimation. This is how you do reviews and retrospectives. This is how you do whatever, right? And that can be different for any particular client, but we need one way that everybody can use as a default. But as you as you get deeper into it, I mean, obviously, they're going to need to find multiple ways. And then as they become expert, right, well, then the way doesn't even matter anymore. And so sometimes to take some of the resistance out to create the safety, you have to articulate a way. And so kind of like bringing it back up to the storyline, you know, we talk about kind of the structure, the practices and the culture. And then we talk about the intermediate steps of the transformation, the base camps. And then what you realize is that to get to each base camp, you've got intermediate outcomes, which are rather measurable. And then you've got skills and things that they, that the teams need to learn to, to get them to those intermediate outcomes. And, and I'm just blown away at how consistent and how manageable that this thing has become. And here's the coaching mindset that we have to get over. If, if we are adverse to teaching an organization one way, because us as experts understand that there's a thousand ways, then I think there's a certain degree of arrogance associated with that. Like I refuse to teach you one way because I expect you to be able to be re-level like me and just figure out a way. So, so what you've got to do as, as I think as a transformation um, agent and a company is to recognize that, that coming out of the gate, that there needs to be a way and approach something that's standard. And so, so, and here's where it starts to kind of blow your mind. It's like, as the organization progresses, Right. Some of the control that you need to have early in order to be able to deal with the dependencies and cross cutting concerns, you can start to think about deprecating. So the process that you start with today should evolve over time very intentionally to become the process that you want it to be in the future. Right. So everything we're doing today, it should not be what we're doing tomorrow. But even within the things that we choose to keep. As the organization matures, they're going to go through the Shuha reprocess and they will take basic practices that they were taught. They will learn multiple ways to do it and then they'll become experts. And so you take this big giant monolith and you start to break it apart. You start to enable it and then you let the pieces mature at their own rate. Okay. And so the big takeaway for me, again, and I, I kind of keep going back to this, is that once you start to see this, you start to realize that transformation work can actually be somewhat scripted. And we use the word scripted rather than planned because like a script, I don't know exactly when I'm going to be to certain parts of the script. I don't know exactly how I'm going to get there, right? It's not like a detailed Gantt chart. 
But but on the flip side, it's not like the the intermediate states are not totally unknown either. Right. right. So but you're you, not going to be there until you see all these things. But when you see these things is whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Like, like I can see, you know, it's like a real good example is I might say by week three in the engagement, I want to have teams formed. Well, there might be a, a hundred reasons why with by week three, you couldn't get the teams formed. But but by week three, we kind of know whether we're ahead of schedule or behind schedule or what we need to do to go get teams formed. But like the worst thing that will happen sometimes is like, you know, you've got a coaching team on the ground three or four months in. And if teams aren't formed, well, you know that there's like a huge problem because it's like if the team isn't formed, then what the hell? Like who the hell's doing scrum? Like what does that even mean to do scrum if you don't have a team? So that okay. that's a tough question though. I mean that that is something yeah. that does like you put a coach in a place that they they not that they go native but they see all the stuff that's going on and they might be able to see tons of reasons why that stuff isn't happening but if you can't get past that you're not going to be able to make it you're not further affected, down the right? path. Right. So one of the interesting patterns that we've seen a bit because we talk about transformation a lot like we'll go into organizations that have an internal coaching team or maybe they even have another company in there that's doing some team level coaching and you talk to those coaches and you go like you know, what's going on? And they can tell you every single problem. The challenge is, is, do you have the influence to go solve those problems? Right. Nobody will listen to me. Well, got it. But it's like, but if nobody's going to listen to you, if you can't form a team, you can't do scrum, right? If you can't get the team a good backlog, you can't do scrum. If that team can't produce a working test and increment, they can't do scrum. So they might be doing something different and maybe it's working, maybe it's not. But it's like we're not going to get the value out of Scrum until we until we improve the ecosystem that those teams are operating in. And if we're powerless to change the ecosystem, then we're going to fail. All right, I want to I want to ask you a question about this. So you just mentioned, you know, power. If we're powerless to change the ecosystem, do you have the influence? I'm wondering if one of those sort of preliminary things that has to be in place is uh, within the organization, a level of comfort with the fact that from now on, everything's constantly changing and we're never going to be comfortable again because the moment we're comfortable, that's when we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. So, so if that is your starting place, then I think you're setting yourself up for failure and all, but Why? the most small, the, all, but the smallest, most closely held or led companies, because, because, you know, basically saying to somebody, I'm going to take you out of your warm, cozy house and you right. are never going to be dry and clean again. Right. Okay. That is not a message that like people want to hear. Right. right. They, they might know that being an unencumbered with their stuff or whatever is ultimately liberating. But what we might need to do is just start off with decluttering. Right. Okay. Start off with downsizing. Start off with, you know, you know, again, I don't know, I've really talked through the metaphor, but, but yeah, right. The ultimate, the ultimate thing is, is like, yeah, you want to get, you want to get people to a place where they're really comfortable with uncertainty. They can deal with abstraction. They can deal with ambiguity. They can deal with rapid change. They can deal with all those things, but the organizations that are starting to try to adopt agile now, that is not who they are. Well, they would have started a long time ago if that's who they were. Yeah. And again, right, we've talked about this before, too. You might get to the point where certain organizations can't change or they're only going to get to a certain level of improvement. But if you've got you know, a company that's making money hand over fist that is you know, 20, 30 years old, has a bunch of legacy people and legacy software and legacy everything, and then their market starts to shift around them and they didn't anticipate it, either A, they're going to go out of business. 
or but like those people don't know how to operate in this new model often. So so as a as a as an owner of that company, you've got to decide do I do I rebuild something in parallel or do I figure out how to enable what I've got and, and help move it to greater levels of maturity. If transformation is an ongoing thing, like we, you know, that's one of the reasons a lot of people don't like the word because it indicates there's an end state. If it's an ongoing thing, we have to get the organization to be comfortable with this. They're going to be continuing to evolve. Like no matter where they are, we might have taken them all the way back to the basics, but but we want them to get this sense of constant change. Okay, so so just because I'm comfortable with constant change doesn't mean that I still don't have things that I have to deliver. And outcomes that I have to achieve, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, got it, right? So let's say you could wave your magic wand and you could say, okay, everybody in the, the organization is totally comfortable with constant upheaval and constant change. Okay. okay. They, we've yanked them out of their house. They're totally okay living in the woods, being dirty and wet and uncomfortable for the rest of their lives. Got it. How do we get the release done in three months? Any release. Yeah, there you go. All right. That's the comment right? for the thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that closes the loop, right? So, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, and, and I will tell you as a, as a business owner, probably my biggest mind, the biggest thing that has shifted in my brain over the last seven years of running Leading Agile is that everybody wants constant change and constant do it on their own until they don't get their paycheck. Yes. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so, so Dave, how would you feel if I told you that we're going to live in constant change and constant ambiguity and constant, whatever up to and including your paycheck? Like you might get paid this month or not. Right. I don't think my wife would enjoy that. Very I, well, much. I don't think my wife would either. Right. <laughs> and so, so the question is, is that there's some sort of middle ground, right? We want to be able to be responsive to change. But we also have obligations to clients and we have obligations to our employees and we have obligations to business partners and we have all kinds of things that, that we're obligated to. And we have not just, not just you know, um, contractual obligations but moral obligations to people. Right. And so there has to be – we have to create organizations that are resilient to change and adaptive to change, right? That can respond to changing market conditions. But that doesn't mean that that we take away all aspects of certainty or we take all away all aspects of knowing that there's going to be enough money in the bank. So there's a balance between what has to be like where's the balance between I'm accountable, you know, and there we've we've discovered a model that works versus giving people local autonomy. And so the same thing that we struggle with in leading agile is the same thing that that organizations struggle with. There there has to be a structure, there has to be milestones, there has to be guardrails or mile markers, right? All those kinds of things. We have to know if we're making progress. We have to be able to pivot if we're not. But being the kind of organization that can operate that way is non-trivial. You know? Yeah, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, it, it, you could even, I think, to an extent, boil it all the way down to the level like of a scrum master's job. Let the team do what they want to do, but don't let them fall off the side of the mountain. Like you have to keep people safe and give them enough direction to keep them from being in harm's way. But beyond that, you want them to take the initiative, right? Yeah. And and it's really kind of interesting. I think, you know, some, some you know, I say extreme elements, right? That's a little dramatic. But you know, I think there's a lot of people that believe in radical self-organization um, at scale. 
and, and you know, maybe in certain contexts that exists, but what we're really basically saying is that there, there needs to be some vision around the architecture, some vision around the operational model, some vision around the outcomes. We want to put those guardrails and mile markers in place, but then empower the people on the ground to make the right local decisions to realize that vision. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that's the balance. And so, you know, to kind of put a bow on this thing, it's like the, the transformation isn't totally emergent, isn't totally self-organizing. There are a set of guide rails and mile markers and patterns and frameworks and things like that, that I think at this stage are, are rather proven how those get implemented on the ground, we want to try to provide as much um, freedom and flexibility for the people doing the work as possible. Yeah. But again, creating a sufficient safety net around their activities that we know that we're making the right level of progress. And so, so that's the thing that's really shifting. And I'm, and I'm going from, you know, these, we're going from these conceptual things about, I need to deal with structure and practices all the way down to like, what does that mean? And how do you make it happen? And, and again, I'm blown away every day by how consistent those change patterns are across our different clients and how like a lot of the stuff we're doing is just how reusable it is between engagements, different industries, different size clients. It's all fundamentally um, the same. And so need to publish a paper on it or something or write a book, I think, but you know, we're too busy doing it right now to write that much about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> so I want to ask you one bigger question. I want to untie okay, the cool. bow a little bit. So you talked about in the earlier on, you talked about structure and practices and mindset, like you need those three things. And I'm still kind of stuck on the fact that you could have, you know, the structure, let's say you get that in place, you get the discipline for the practices down. Mm-hmm. You can even get people to have this sort of understanding of the mindset but it seems mm-hmm. like there's a fourth thing that should be there after that. I mean, is that the re or is there is there another what is, element? So what's the fourth thing as you're thinking about it? What is the – I don't know. But it just seems like it t- taking these, th- these three things and getting them to the point where this is actually a totally internalized thing. It's, it's gone beyond just I think about it this way to we are this way. These things are just part of how we work and now we can explore other stuff. It just, it's, it's like you're talking about a state of enlightenment within an organization – and I'm going back to your original question of then what? Like, what are you going to do after you get this and let me get a sandwich? What happens next? You know, I, I think we would all fundamentally agree that, you know, if I take all the complexity out of it and just reduce it down to kind of the, um, the core elements, right, the scrum team. Like, you know, at some point in time, we've got to form the scrum team. We've got to get its operating model. We've got to teach it scrum, you know, practices, ceremonies, artifacts, roles, right? People need to know how to do their job. Then, you know, if they're operating off of a clear backlog. Now, Scrum can be approached one of two, you know, probably one of a zillion ways, but right, you could have three to six months of ready backlog. The product owner could never change their mind, right? They could take market information and just keep plowing through the backlog. And you could have a perfectly formed Scrum team operating off of a six month backlog that does everything in Scrum right, reviews, retrospectives, enable the team, right? all the different things, right? right? And then just systematically plow through that backlog. There's nothing in Scrum that tells you you can't do that. Right. What Scrum fundamentally does is it gives you, it creates an ecosystem based on how you write user stories and how you plan and how you measure and everything. Um, it gives you the opportunity to change direction. It doesn't tell you you have to. It gives you the opportunity to. 
Right. And my belief is that is that if you if you don't if you're doing waterfall and you don't have the ability to change direction, because the 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 governance and the the nature of the handoffs precludes it or makes it too expensive, then you don't even have the opportunity to have the conversation. If I if I took that exact same organization and I formed a scrum team around it, and and now I was still approaching scrum with the same waterfall mindset, six month backlog, teams yeah. operating, never deviating, right? I'm still doing really good scrum, but I'm right. not taking advantage of the lever that it's giving me in market. Yes. But here's the interesting thing. But now the main difference is, is I have the ability to change, right? So the inability of change is no longer a conceptual barrier. I have the ability to change. Okay, so when I'm confronted with a new reality, I'm a month into the backlog and I need to pivot, maybe I maybe I don't, but I can. And then maybe at some point the market pressures get so great that I do. And then I learn the value of, well, crap, I learned something and now I was able to change and I changed and I got a better outcome. Okay. And then over time, right, that mindset starts to shift on the product owner side. Well, it's actually better if I don't execute this entire six-month backlog. Yeah. Um, it's better if I change based on what I'm learning, right? Well, then maybe after they learn that, that it's good to change, they start to realize that creating a six-month backlog is a bit of waste, right? Maybe we yeah. don't need a six-month backlog. Maybe we need a three-month backlog, or maybe we just need three to four sprints, okay? And, and, so that's, they, and that's the thing yeah. that I'm talking about, that state where it's not an issue anymore. Like you're just doing this stuff and it's part of who you are and it's not something you call out because it's just you become it. Yeah. So so again, I, I think I think a well-formed scrum team has kind of a – has an opportunity to achieve that level of zen, right? Um, like Like – you know, it's so ingrained that way of working so ingrained in leading agile, you know, we've got two developers on staff and like literally every day I talk to the developers and we decide what's the best thing to build next. Right. Yeah. But it's, but it's literally my money. I'm paying developers. I'm building product for my company and I have total autonomy to decide. Yeah. Right. And so we can make it up as we go. And I am totally comfortable spending money to make it up as we go. But here's the interesting thing. The money that I'm spending are discretionary dollars. They're not mission critical dollars, right? So if I spend this money, I'll, I'll get outcomes that will help make leading agile better or I won't. And I can decide to change direction, but I'm not accountable to anybody. So you have to create the, the stability and the safety to have that level of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. But, but that has okay. to be really real, right? Now, if I were the, – the other side would be is if I were sitting here with my developers going, look, we've promised to be in market with particular, this particular set of features by the end of the quarter and the client's expecting it. I need some degree of assurance that – that we're going to be able to get there within the budget we've allocated. So this is a profitable project. That's yeah. a different level of rigor. Yeah. You know? And so, so again, it's like, it's, this isn't just about changing the people and their mindset. It's changing the operational model. It's changing the practices. It's creating optionality. Again, whether we leverage the optionality or take advantage of it or not, it's a different story. But once yeah. we learn how to take advantage of the optionality, then maybe we can start exposing that optionality to our customers, and then they learn how to operate with us in a different way. 
But it's like what we want to do is we want to walk in and say, customers need to think different. Leaders need to think different. Teams need to think different. If everybody just thought different all at the same time, we would be awesome. Yeah. But the challenge is, is that we're investing non-discretionary dollars, right? We, we, everybody needs to get a return on that investment. It's very easy to kind of think as an, as a, a business is like this, something that's there to support employees and, you know, make people's lives better. And it is, but you don't get to do it if it's not Until you profitable. Get the other stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, maybe you can do them both, right? And ideally, like, and I think we've struck a pretty good balance of staying profitable and leading agile and doing the right things by our customers and doing the right things by our employees. But if we if we miss payroll once or twice, or we run a deficit for too long because I'm out busy empowering people anymore. and letting them, well, then at some point the, the company goes out of business. Yeah. Right. And so to me, like this notion of empowerment and, you know, letting people self-actualize and everything, it's a um, it's a it's a benefit of a healthy company. If yeah. you're not necessarily a healthy company, you got to figure out how to become one so that you can convey those benefits. Right. Because everybody's great with uncertainty until the uncertainty impacts them. <laughs> until they get punched. Yeah. Right. Until that until that paycheck doesn't land in the bank at the end of the week. Um that's when it becomes a problem. And so, so again, right, the, the whole trick in all of this is like, it's not a free for all, but it's also not like a micromanaged command and control. Like you have no room to breathe. Yeah. The, the, the trick in orchestrating a transformation is to figure out which steps are knowable, which steps are repeatable, which things need to be standardized, which things can be scripted. And then, um, and then, using the art and the creativity within that, that, that transformation ecosystem to allow people to make local changes. And, yeah. you know, when the things are not going according to plan, there's usually a reason and we need to all be able to talk about it. We might be ahead of schedule. We might be behind schedule. Um, but that's just, just solid rational management at that point. Yeah. Cool. All right. So you're going to be digging into this um, more at the Agile conference, right? Yeah. So I've actually got two talks. I was really, um, I was really um, uh, honored that um, the conference invited me to do a talk. I think it's on Tuesday. It's really early. Um, and so I get to do kind of like the conference sanctioned talk on Agile transformation. So cool. that's going to be fun. So I'm going to take, you know, some of the earlier work that I've done, and I'm going to make it more general, less kind of leading Agile way and more like, you know, hey, think about these things as you engage with the rest of the conference material. He's, you know, I, like whenever I get to do something that's kind of keynotey, I like to kind of set context and go, okay, as you're listening to this, these, this breadth of ideas, you know, this is here's some conceptual anchors to hang them on, right? And so, okay. I'm very happy to have that opportunity. And then I'm doing another talk, which is really fascinating. It's basically about some of the work that we've done with non-software companies, specifically around like um, done some work with some hotel chains and some fast food restaurant kind of things, where they want to take agile concepts and apply it to how they manage their core business and certain okay. um, things internally. So it's not so much about transformation, but it's really about how do you pragmatically blend um, you know, kind of core team-based agile concepts with lean concepts. And even, you know, how do you deal with that when you're having to interface with the things that are inherently more plan driven? And so it's really going to be, it's really kind of a mixed methodology talk. Um, but, but in the context of non-IT shops, very, very real, very pragmatic. Um, not a lot of theory, just a lot of just, you know, stuff that we've done that's worked. So. 
Cool. And, and so if people want to check that out, I want to mention this while we're doing the podcast too, is yeah. that you've been doing a lot of stuff on Periscope and we're putting that stuff up on YouTube. Yep. So yep. people can find that by checking out Leading Agile um, in those environments. And dude, thank you very much for taking the time out to do this. I really appreciate it. It was great talking <laughs> to you too. Thanks for thanks for having me. It was good chatting with you as well, Dave. See ya.